0: There you can listen to or download educational programs related to all aspects of our divine faith, and you can review our schedule of upcoming events. We hope you can join us in person. Welcome back, Monsignor Pope.
1: Okay, good, thank you. Well now we had um, last week looked essentially at the text of the Our Father, and we did uh, some analysis of the text, and we looked at certain words, and we'll do a little quick bit of that today to kind of mop that up, but what I want to begin to do is to um, move into more the question of what is deliverance, and what is, um, you know, how do we, who needs it, and how do we receive it, and so on. So we're going to look at that, but just a reminder of last week's material, we looked at the persons of the prayer. Now again, it begins, Our Father. See? And so you are invited to relate to God as your father, not the, the deity or some potentate up there you know, running the universe, which he is, but he's your father who loves you. <laughs> and I, I know I had some of you come up to me afterward and say, well, I, I struggle. I don't really experience a lot of personal tenderness from the father. And, uh, uh, and others said, well... Aren't you sort of falling into the trap, though, of maybe turning this whole thing into just kind of this, uh, you know, me and dad kind of thing, and you lose the content of the faith? And again, uh, like anything else in these matters, we hold everything in balance, don't we? Uh, we, we look for that, that, that middle ground we call the virtue, in medio stat virtus, right? The, in the middle stands the virtue, and we try to avoid excess or defect. And so an excess would be, oh, I'm so in with the father that he doesn't mind that I'm living with my girlfriend. <laughs> no, you see, <clears throat> you, you've uh, lost the doctrinal <laughs> emphasis. Or you're so into rules and a myriad of things and that you, you, you no longer remember that your father is telling you because he loves you and he cares about you. And so we want to find uh, neither excess or defect. This is a very... Profound and personal relationship we're called to have with the Father and Jesus wants to give that to us. He he died to put us back in touch with his Father, and we'll look at that again uh, as we look at the notes tonight. So we want to find that middle ground where we remember that he's our Father and we love him and we're invited to call him Abba. But he is God and he is Lord and Creator and he is ever to be adored, loved, but also respected. So we have the balance, right? We need that balance, but. I think a lot of people struggle to find that, that personal, tender love of the Father. And so the Lord is inviting us in the Our Father to, again, get in touch with the fact that we're praying to Our Father who loves us. See, And then we're, 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 we were given some precautions regarding the prayer. We, we do sort of enter into an agreement. Lord, I'm, I'm going to be forgiving of other people's sins as I'm asking you to forgive me mine. And the Lord warned us. But... Then we went fundamentally to the picture of prayer. Hmm? Maybe I should just move to that slide. Where we we looked at the Our Father in five steps, right? What what, what basically are we saying? Are we just saying a bunch of words? No, it's not just words. They are precious. But it is really a vision, a picture uh, uh, of prayer, a kind of a, a plan for your prayer. See? And the five basic elements are that we should relate. Our Father see that we should rejoice who art in heaven hallowed be your name see we're excited we're praising god likewise we're receiving from the father so give you know your kingdom come your will be done on earth as it is in heaven so i'm i'm asking lord that you will teach me about your kingdom that you'll 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 give me your word so i can have your kingdom become alive in my heart and in my heart in then in the world that I live in, see? So we, we receive from the Father. Uh, we're, we're taught by Him. And then we request, give us this day our daily bread. And we talked a little bit about the problem there, that there's a word there, super substantial, epiusion, and I gave you a little handout. And it's online if you don't have it tonight. Um, but we, we ask, we ask, God, take care of me. Take care of my family. Take care of people I love. Take care of this old hell-bound, sin-soaked world, this lunatic asylum that we're living in today. Help us, save us, have mercy on us. Keep us always in your grace. And then finally, we we go into that that last part of the Our Father where we repent of our sins and we ask for deliverance from the evil one, right? Now, since I was asked to speak on the Our Father uh, and the prayer of Jesus uh, as a prayer of Jesus that helps to deliver us, what I want to do then, just to sum up quickly again last week, we went through this, but remember here. Fundamentally, deliverance is accomplished you see, not by magic fairy dust or the force or any of this. It's accomplished by relationship. See, all that talk at the end of the prayer about deliverance presupposes that we're relating to a Father who loves us, that we're rejoicing in in Him and receiving His truth in our life and in that vital, vivid, life-changing, transformative relationship with the Lord, which is the normal Christian life, and it's in the context of that relationship with our Father and His Son Jesus and the Holy Spirit dwelling within us that we are delivered, delivered. All right, so that's where we're going to pick up tonight. Um, This would be our basic outline for tonight, all right? How are we delivered? I've really already done that with you. That's the review. How are we delivered? In one word, relationship. Relationship. And that's really what brings you deliverance. Brings you out of the kingdom of darkness and into the kingdom of light. Jesus Christ died for you, unites you to himself through baptism, incorporates you into his body and takes you out of this lunatic asylum and into the beautiful kingdom of light. Okay, and so that's what we're, we're going to begin to develop now on the second half tonight. So, again, in a word, how are we delivered? Relationship. Relationship. All right. Now then, we need to ask, then, well, what is deliverance? All right, we'll look at that first tonight. Then we're going to say, then, from what are we delivered? Now, the, the, there's, there's three things mentioned there at the end of the Our Father that we'll look at briefly, and then we're going to get into the main part of the the talk tonight, which is the three incursions of the evil one, all right, which are fundamentally temptation, oppression, and possession, all right, and we'll look at those incursions and how uh, the Lord will help us in those areas, all right, so let's go on then to this next question then, and you have your notes, but, and I know that's too hard for some of you to read in the back, so hopefully you have written notes, but I'm going to, Recite these notes, all right? So first of all, let's reflect a little bit on what do we mean by deliverance, all right? Now, um, some of these notes I've based on a lot of different sources. Um, and um, this particular uh, part of the notes, I've, I have based a lot on Neil Lozano's book, Unbound, and also called resist, uh, resisting the, the evil one, or re- resisting the devil, Here's a good definition of deliverance. Deliverance, that we, we speak of deliverance in two senses. First of all, deliverance is what happened, past tense, deliverance is what happened to you when you were baptized and you received the gift of faith, when you were delivered from one kingdom and you were put into another kingdom. You were taken out of the kingdom of darkness, or as saint paul calls it this present evil age you were taken out of that and you were put into the kingdom of the father's dear son jesus christ to quote colossians 1:13. all right now so again first of all deliverance is if you're baptized historical it's something that has happened already for you historically that is to say deliverance is what happened to you when you were baptized and received the gift of faith when you were delivered and from one kingdom, namely Satan's kingdom, the prince of this world, when you were delivered from that and you were put into another kingdom, the kingdom of our Lord Jesus Christ, King of the universe. Somebody say amen. Amen. All right. Now, we also, though, speak of deliverance as, although it's an historical event, how you and I lay hold of that deliverance, see, and live out of it and experience it, It's what we might call the unfolding or we we, we might say ongoing work of deliverance of our Lord. So it's one thing to say historically, you have been delivered, and you have. And it is simply for you and me to lay hold of what Jesus Christ died to give us. It's available to you already. But because we're human, we struggle to sometimes lay hold of all the resources we have and to use them effectively, right? And so there is what we might call an ongoing type of deliverance that is uh, necessary. It's the, if you will, the unfolding of the baptismal graces that are already given, but, if you will, not fully yet experienced by us. We have not fully laid hold of them. So, deliverance, then, subsequent to baptism, is when the church, through her ministers or members, helps a person to take fuller possession of the freedom they have already been given in Christ Jesus. All right? to take fuller possession of the freedom you have already been given. <coughs> Nobody gives you deliverance other than Jesus Christ. If someone helps you to lay hold of it more deeply, then the Lord is working you know, through them to help you to lay hold of something you've already got. Okay? And it's one of these, I think, mysteries of our life that we so struggle, so struggle, to simply lay hold of what the Lord has already done for us, just to have enough faith to say, you know, it's real. I know that Jesus Christ did not die on the cross so that I could be in bondage to anger, lust, bitterness, fear, diabolical incursions, and all these assaults and sadnesses and sorrows of the evil one. Jesus Christ did not die on the cross so I could walk through this world depressed, anxious, bitter, and lonely. Are you clear on that? That's not why he died on the cross. He died on the cross to give you a completely new life. If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has gone, and the new has come. Now, is that a slogan? Or is it a rock-solid reality that you've got to lay hold of and start saying, I'm actually actually going to believe that and start walking that way. Um. See? I'm going to step out on that faith. And you know, you see it in the old 12-step meetings, fake it till you make it. You might not even know what it means yet. Well, what, it, what would it mean to live my life without bitterness? I don't know, but I'm going to... Well, let me look at a person who doesn't look bitter. Okay, there's one. Hmm. Well, let me... Let me I, I don't know. I'm going to fake it. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to behave like they do for a minute. See? Now, you know, the, usually the word fake, we don't, we don't like it's a bad word, but the idea is step out and just try. You know, when you were a young kid, your mother or father said, you know, you have a principle in you called balance. So, we can take these training wheels off your bike and you can actually ride without them. Oh, no, 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 it's in you. Trust me, it's in you. It's in you. I tell you, it is in you. Oh, uh-uh. no, I'm afraid, mommy. I'm afraid, daddy. Off come the training wheels anyway. <laughs> you know, and you fell a few times, right? But by the end of the day, you're leaning into curves, riding without hands, <laughs> right? Okay. So, that's the image, you know, that it's something that's in us and the Lord has purchased for us already. It's there. And the question is how to discover it and how to live out of it. And that's that what we call ongoing deliverance. And it takes a lot of counseling, a lot of encouragement, a lot of trial and error. It it takes all sorts of things to help people to begin to lay hold of the freedom, the deliverance that the Lord has already given them by his death on the cross. Okay, so therefore, another way of putting it, letter C, or the third point I'm making here, that deliverance is moving from a place of darkness, and lies. Church, if I can call you all that today, Church, the devil is a liar. Now somebody says amen, right? He is a liar from the beginning. One of the first titles given to him in Scripture is pater mendaci, father of lies. Hmm? And you've got to understand there are a lot of lies that you believe and you've got to stop believing them you have to renounce those lies like you're not pretty enough you're not good enough you're not tall enough you're not strong enough you can't do it see you're no good because you got to stop believing those lies see and you got to start living out of the truth you are God's son you are God's daughter you're a pardon the expression but chip off the old block you you have come to share in the divine nature people walk around and say, "Well, shooks, sure, I'm only human no you're not don't lie Do not lie about yourself. You are not only human if you've been baptized because you have been incorporated into Christ and you've come to share in the divine nature. I didn't say you're gods, but I said you share in the divine nature. You are not simply human. Because of your baptism into Christ Jesus, you share in the divine nature. You are a new creation. You are not just pathetically weak human beings. You are strong in Christ Jesus. But lies, 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 lies all day long, the devil is telling you. And we buy into them and we hold on to them. So deliverance is moving from a place of darkness and lies about us, about life, and about God to a place of light and truth. It is seeing ourselves and our lives and the world as God sees. So we move out of lies into the truth. We move out of darkness and we move into the light. Now, I'm a witness, I hope you are too, but you know, I'm 54 and I've been doing this spiritual thing seriously really since I was about 24. So let's just say I've been at it about 30 years, okay? I want you to know a lot of darkness in my mind has gone away and been replaced by light. I was not on board with all the teachings of the church when I was 24. Sorry, <laughs> I'm just going to fessing up here. But, but the Lord has led me to a place where you can't shut me up about the truth. And I love the Lord, and I love his truth, and I'm convicted by it, see? And I'm just going to tell you that that's a journey, right? Coming out of darkness and into light. And I hope some of you, some of you might, and I'm not going to ask for any personal testimonies, but I'm just going to say, some of you all might have had a time in your life when you were pro-abortion. Or you thought that living together outside of marriage was just fine, thank you. And you probably didn't. Some of you might have done it and so on. I could just, you know. Or, you know, you thought your whole life was about, you know, having the million dollar home and, um, and uh, you know, just being greedy and materialistic and to heck with anyone else and, you know, who cares about God? And now you come to a place where you come to a place on Tuesday nights, a lovely place, but you come to listen to a crazy guy up here go on and on. <laughs> what is wrong with you? <laughs> well, you come out of darkness and into light. <laughs> Not about me, but the truth that's being proclaimed. You come to love and be attracted to the truth. Now, how did that happen? That's called deliverance. You see, we, we, we are born rebels in this world, and the Lord touches us in baptism, and he begins a work of healing. And he goes to work and draws us out of that darkness and that rebellion and the way we buy into lies, and we lie to ourselves, and we share lies, and lies about the purpose of human life, lies about who you are, who God is, or who God isn't, all those lies, and we begin to shed them one by one, and we run to the truth, and we begin to love the truth. And that's one of the reasons you're here tonight. Amen? Amen. Now that is a work of God on your life. see. And I know we're all still struggling, we've all got some doubts still, or what have you, but I just say to you, stay with God, and the deliverance will become total, total. Now, therefore, deliverance is moving from a place of darkness and lies to a place of light and truth, seeing ourselves, our lives, and the world as God sees. Some quick images from Scripture, just to give you, uh, what's the most archetypal image of deliverance? It was the Exodus story, right? Those people were in bondage for 400 years, see? And they were told for 400 years, your identity is that of a slave. You are a slave. OK, we're slaves. And they bought into that lie. And they cried out. Many, many years ago, an African-American woman that uh, I, I met um, in my first assignment, her great-grandmother had been a slave. And she says, uh, um, that, and uh, she, uh, I said, oh, you, you said your great-grandmother was a slave. She said, no, 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 Father, I didn't say that. I said they called her a slave. She wasn't no slave. She was a child of God. Amen. See. You know, if you don't know who you are, anybody can name you, right? But if you know who you are, nobody, nobody can put a label on you. They might force you to carry heavy loads, but you're not a slave. You're a child of God. See? Now, therefore, go back then. Israel was delivered in the Exodus event, delivered out of bondage and brought to the promised land. And they would celebrate that every year, the Passover, see, Their identity as slaves was overshadowed by their identity as God's chosen people. You see? So whatever negativity that locked them into this, at some point, their identity as God's chosen people, as someone that God would lead out of slavery, they were finally able to put enough faith in that and follow Moses. Now, let me ask you a question. You're at the Red Sea. There's water. 30 feet up, 30 feet up. You gotta go through. You gonna do it? <laughs> now it helps because you got Pharaoh coming behind you, all right? <laughs> a little kicking there and getting you in there. But you know, it took a lot of guts, didn't it? We think, oh yeah, they just walked on through there. No man, I'm scared. I hope this thing holds. <laughs> <laughs> don't don't fail me now, Lord. <laughs> So again, you know, they they had a lot of courage, you see, but God had to get them to that place, and Moses too. But again, you see the vision of deliverance. It took, what was the real deliverance? It wasn't just coming out of one physical location to another physical location. It wasn't just acquiring real estate. It was allowing their identity as God's chosen people to overshadow and displace their identity as slaves. Is that happening in your life? Is, that's deliverance. You see the picture there? It's not just one place of real estate to another, going out of poverty and into wealth. It is a complete change of identity and self knowledge. Okay? Now, um, so there is then, that's just one biblical image. Let me give you another biblical image. It's, I've already quoted it once, but from Colossians 1 and verse 13. Because again, we're asking this question what is deliverance? Colossians 1.13 says this, God the Father has delivered us from the dominion of darkness and has brought us into the kingdom of his own dear Son. Notice, it's an accomplished fact that Paul is describing. He's he's speaking of an event that has happened. Now, he's not discounting the fact that we've got to lay hold of that and begin to live out of it, see, so we've got to let that identity that we have been translated or transferred from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light, we've got to let that sink into us, okay, and start to live out of it. Now, St. Paul then describes his own ministry. Here's another biblical image of deliverance. Paul said, when he, how would I describe my ministry? In, in Acts 26 and verse 17, St. Paul says this. Uh, the Lord said to me, Paul, I am sending you to open the eyes of the Gentiles so that they may turn from darkness to light from the dominion of Satan to God that they may receive forgiveness of sins and an inheritance among those who have been sanctified by faith in me okay again see the images again out of darkness into light out of one kingdom and into God's kingdom 1 John chapter one, the first letter of John in the third chapter says this The reason that the Son of God appears was to destroy the devil's work. These are pictures of deliverance I'm trying to give you. This is how the scriptures speak of deliverance. Okay? Uh, out of one kingdom to another, out of darkness into light, out of bondage into freedom out of slavery into freedom, out of slavery into the identity of God's children, the chosen people. All of these are images, uh, again and again, to destroy the destruction of the devil's work in your life. Okay? All of these, then, would be biblical ways. And again, notice again, they are described as accomplished events that need to come alive in us. Okay? Now, uh, John chapter 8, Jesus simply said, to the Jews of that day, if the sun makes you free, you'll be free indeed. See, if the sun makes you free, how many of you believe that Jesus Christ, the Son of God, has made you free? See, then you are free indeed. See? But do you live in that freedom? Well, I can't help it. I, you know, we 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 so easily go back into the darkness and into the lies, and part of it is sloth. You know? just too much trouble to lay hold of that. Yeah, see. But would you please let it be a work of God in your life? See, And you start to see that your sense of being free indeed gets deeper and deeper with every passing year. Look, the normal Christian life is to be seeing sins put to death and grace is coming alive. To be seeing progress in your life. To be seeing I, 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 was at, I once was at A, and now I'm at B, and I'm heading towards C. I'm not what I want to be, but I'm not what I used to be. A wonderful change has come over me. To be growing, maturing, changing, seeing your faith deepen, your hope deepen. You're becoming more confident, more serene. You're seeing your gifts come alive. You're seeing sins begin to be put to death and become less powerful in your life. You're more confident, more serene, more sure. You speak the truth with love. You love people more. You love God more. This is the normal Christian life. To be seeing this incredible deliverance happening in your life so that you say, I am. I was delivered and I am being delivered. I'm not what I want to be, but I'm not what I used to be. A change, a change has come over me. And this is deliverance. Okay, so just asking this question: What is deliverance? Too many people, I think, in the modern age, kind of want to turn deliverance into a prayer session. You know, someone comes in and I go, someone you know, and then oh, that, I feel better now. You know, well, all right, but you know, you see what I'm saying? It's, got, it's 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 deeper. It's more lasting. I'm not saying those aren't those aren't deliverance moments, but you see what I'm getting at? It's got to be understood more deeply and more richly in your life. See, now listen, the devil wants to lie to you and say nothing's happening. But I'm going to tell you, if you've been faithful, as I have for the last 30 years to the sacraments, getting to church on Sunday, I get to church every Sunday. (laughs) (laughs) Weekly confession, you know, uh, reading scripture every day, you know. But if you've been faithful to prayer, scripture, sacraments, God's working a work in your life. And the devil wants to steal the memory of, From you you see you ask the Holy Spirit to anoint you you would not be here on a Tuesday night coming through all that traffic and rain if God wasn't doing something in your life see and you wouldn't certainly be having the patience to listen to a a loud mouth like me if God was not doing something in your life so let the Holy Spirit show you what he's doing see and have confidence and hope that he who has begun a good work in you will bring it to completion. The Lord, I, I don't believe, Lord, that you, would br- you brought me this far to leave me, you know. God, who has begun a good work in you, will bring it to completion, all right? So, deliverance, deliverance, okay? Now, let's continue on with this next question. From what are we delivered? Now, the, the, the latter part of the Our Father that we're really looking at here, remember, spending all that time as we did last week on relationship, relationship, relationship. Now, given this relationship, Father God, I love you. I praise you. I, I, I adore you. I, I, I ask from you that you'll take care of me. I, I ask you to give me your word and feed me and teach me and take care of me. And, and I, I, I lift up my heart to you and all the needs that are in the world today. And, oh, thank you. Thank you for all you've done. Now, in this relationship of love and of trust, I also ask you, Abba, Father, I ask you, OK, deliver me, you know, for help me forgive, as, as we say, forgive me my trespasses as I forgive those who trespass against me. And lead me not into temptation, and deliver me from the evil one. So, the Our Father says that regarding our deliverance, we want to look at three fundamental things, and I'm going to spend most of the time on that last one. But we want to be delivered, first of all, from our sins. Forgive us our trespasses, all right? Secondly, we want to be delivered from temptation. And thirdly, we want to be delivered from the evil one. Or it it says in the Our Father, deliver us from evil, but it's probably better, more literally translated, the evil one. Okay. Now, I want to spend most of the time on that last one for two reasons. First of all, um, we talked already a lot about deliverance from sin. But let me just make it plain with you, okay? De- uh, the, 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 the understanding here of, um, forgive us our trespasses, our sins. Brothers and sisters, there is just nothing more serious in your life than your sin. You might think it's about your finances or your physical health. You, you might think it's the cancer. You, you might think it's that a demon's beating up on you, whatever. Your most serious problem is none of that. Your most serious problem is your sin. Jesus looked at a man who was paralyzed, probably a quadriplegic. He looked at him. He said, son, your sins are forgiven. <clears throat> um, Jesus, pardon me, he's paralyzed. That's his problem. Oh, I didn't even notice that. <laughs> I, I, I saw his sins. I, I'm just so overwhelmed by his sins that I, I figured that was the issue. Now, God looked at a paralyzed man, quadriplegic, and said, your biggest problem, your sin. Jesus, you got it wrong. No, you see, we don't understand how serious our sins are. We make light of them. But God doesn't. Uh, Exhibit A. That that cross shows you that God does not make light of our sins. And that's what it took. I'm not in that bad of shape, Lord. Yes, you are. Oh, really? No, no, Lord, you did that for humanity. No, no, I did all that for you. No, I'm not in that bad of shape. Yes, you are. No, I'm not. Yes, you are. Thank you, Lord. Now, please pay attention because a lot of people show up at the door of a rectory and say, Father, I got a demon. I need you to pray over me. Oh, all right. But let's talk about your sins first. <laughs> people aren't getting to confession and they're not really praying and they're not receiving sacraments and they're doing stuff they shouldn't be doing and they're all uptight about a demon. A guy comes to me one time and he says, Father, I need you to pray over me. I, I got a demon that's poking me all day, all through the night, poking me in the face. And he showed me a black and blue mark. I said, well, it looks like the demon is poking you. I said, tell me about your life. He says, well, anyway, he's, he's, he's you know, he's shacked up. He's, you know, he's not going to church. He you know. says, listen, your biggest problem isn't this poking. Your biggest problem is you're going to go to hell if you don't repent. And the demon is basically saying, you're mine, you're mine already. You're mine, you're mine. Now let's get you to repent. You've got to you've got to stop sleeping with that girlfriend of yours, and you've got to move out, and you've got to be honorable toward her and, and, and ask her to marry you, and you've got to start getting to church. Or All the prayers in the world aren't going to have any effect on you, see? So you see, but a lot of people jump ahead and they say, my biggest problem is there's a demon, or I've got an illness, or I lost my job. That is not your biggest problem, okay? Your biggest problem always, always is going to be your sin. Now, I'm not saying that these other things can be completely neglected. We have obligations to help people. But if you, you see the idea. Your biggest problem is your sin, okay? Um, by the way, it's interesting, just a couple of scriptures here, and I'll move on. But Jesus was called Jesus. Why? Well, was, we were told in Matthew chapter 1, You shall name him Jesus because he will save his people from economic uh, illnesses. Is that, oh, no, that, oh yeah, I, I read that wrong. I'm sorry. Uh, you shall name him Jesus, for he will save his people from bad political li- leaders. <laughs> Wait a minute. Oh, oh I'm, reading the, I'm, I'm reading the Greek upside down. Okay. <laughs> you shall name him Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. So, um, are you paying attention, you see? Okay. Uh, Jesus said to, to the Jews one day in chapter John chapter 8, he said, he's speaking to a, a crowd, maybe like this. And they all think they're all fessed up and they're, they're, they're God's chosen people. And he says, listen, your father Abraham saw my day and he rejoiced. He says, who do you think you are? You're not even 15, and you say you saw Abraham. And he goes on. Anyway, he finally comes, zeroes in and he says, I have much to say about you, much to condemn you for. But I only say that which my father has come to say, told me to say. But I want you to know, unless you come to believe that I am, you will die in your sins. See? Whoa. You know, he's not messing around with them, right? Didn't he get the memo that you're supposed to be pleasant in the, ho- in the pulpit? You're not supposed to upset people? See? <laughs> okay. But anyway, now, what I'm saying is, you see, he's, he's urgent with them. Why? Because he sees how their sin has afflicted them, how it's dark in their mind. He is the Messiah they have longed for. He's standing right in front of them, and they can't see. Why? Because their sins have blinded them. Okay? Their sins have blinded them. All right. So, now by the way, he gave them four proofs of his divinity. I don't have time to develop that all, but let me just really quickly. In John's Gospel, Jesus always indicates there are four proofs for his divinity that he insists that they accept, and here they are. First of all, that he fulfills Scripture, hundreds of Scriptures. Everything from being born in Bethlehem to multiplying loaves and fishes, giving the sight sight to the blind, feeding the mul- you know, you get the idea. He fulfilled hundreds of Scripture. Secondly, he worked miracles, which were also a fulfillment of Scripture, but of themselves spoke to his authority and his power. Okay? So he gave, those were the first two, the, the miracles, if you will, and the, and the fulfillment of God's Word. Secondly, or I say thirdly, the testimony of John the Baptist, now, John the Baptist, everybody agreed, he's a righteous dude. And he is, if he said he's the Messiah, he's got to be the Messiah. All right, so that's the third evidence. And then finally, the fourth is the testimony of God in their heart. In other words, the gift of faith. Prevenient grace, yes, but of faith, a gift of faith that the Father is working through his Holy Spirit, saying, This is my son. Listen to him. Listen to him. Listen to him. Those were the four proofs. So it's not like, you know, some dude steps off a turnip truck and he has a mountain twang and coming up from the, from the hill country of Judea and he has a hick accent and he says, I am God. You know, that's not. It wasn't that way, right? He gave them evidence and he stood before them finally at, one, at the critical moment in John's Gospel, at the real turning point of the Gospel and said, you will die in your sins unless you come to believe that I am. And they took up rocks to stone him. Okay, so all of that is a way of saying that, please understand, when we're talking about deliverance, the first deliverance, forgive us our sins. Now, by the way, trespasses, sins, debts, what is it? I have some notes there for you. I don't have time to develop it tonight. The word debt, I think, is really what this very clearly what the Greek word says. The reason we got away from the word debt is people heard money. Uh, we use trespasses. Now people think property rights. <laughs> Some people want to say just forgive us our sins. Okay, but please, the reason I think debt is a good word, I think I told you this last week, is that most of us understand how awful debt can be. If it's a heavy debt and you feel like you've got no way out of it, you feel humiliated, you, there's just no way out, you feel powerless, that's, that's our problem. We have a debt. We cannot pay. We owe, as Jesus said, there was a man who owed a huge debt. Well, the Greek doesn't even say a huge debt. It says 10,000 talents. That's like several trillion dollars in modern terms. He's not going to work a little overtime and pay it off, right? This man has a serious problem. And so he was ordered to be sold into slavery and his whole family. And he begged the king. And the king had pity and just waived the debt. <gasps> now you see? But of course it didn't dawn on him. He went and found a guy that owed him 500 bucks and had him thrown into jail. And you know the story, right? King called him back, said, you worthless f- servant, back into jail with you. No pity. Now the point is of that parable though is you have a debt you cannot pay. And you're not going to work a little overtime or say a few extra rosaries. Your debt and my debt is so amazing, so astonishing, that only the grace and mercy of God can help us. I'm not saying don't pray your rosaries. I'm not saying that, but I'm saying to you, you can't buy it because you don't got enough money. And that's why I think debt is probably the best way to understand. Forgive us our debts. We all know what it's like to be financially underwater. I say most of us anyway, right? You get the idea. So. This is an enormous deliverance that the Lord effects for us. And just saying, I paid it all. Paid in full. Now you come to me and let's get started again. Let's look at some of the wounds and the hurts that have affected you. And let's get to work. But paid in full. Thank you, Jesus. I mean, what does it mean every mass when the priest says to you, Do this in remembrance of me or do this in memory of me. That's Jesus really talking to you there. What does it mean to remember? It means to have so present in my mind and my heart what he has done for me so that I'm grateful and different. There is just no other way for us to go before God and realize the debt that he paid without just being astonished and grateful. And because we're grateful, we're different. And you see how delivering that is? Do you understand what gratitude can do for you and how it can just take so much poison out of your system right away? When gratitude, an immense gratitude, dawns on you, so much poison goes away. Gratitude is like a form of joy, isn't it? Listen, you know, when I'm joyful or just got some good news or I'm, and someone asks me for 10 bucks, I give them 20. Someone's coming to me who's kind of a, oh, hey, how you doing, you know? Our whole heart, our whole mentality, is changed when we're grateful and joyful. And you see, so you see the vision here. These are not just throwaway words. How are you going to be delivered? Well, first of all, you've got to realize that your sins have to be forgiven, but they are. And when you lay hold of them, it finally begins to dawn on you what He did for you. You're grateful, and you're different, and you're delivered. From 80% of the poison that's in you right now all the negativity and the nastiness and I'll get you and all that stuff that gets on us and the disappointments and the anger and the fear so much of it just vanishes when we go sit at the foot of the cross and say anoint me Holy Spirit to understand what he did for me Years I spent in vanity and pride, caring not my Lord had died, knowing that it was for me he died at Calvary. Oh, mercy there was great and grace was free and pardon was multiplied to me. There my burdened soul found liberty at Calvary. See, so much deliverance will come if you will just sit there, ponder the debt that he paid. All right, sin. Our first deliverance is from our sin, see? And it's not just, oh, what a wretch am I. You see what I'm trying to get you? I'm trying to get you to move to the next level of that. Say, oh, I am, but oh, what an incredible gift God has given to me, and I'm filled with joy. that He's been so good to me when all I deserve is hell. Temptation, deliver us from temptation. Now, I, I'm not going to talk about temptation tonight because it is, it is its own course bring me back in Lent, (laughs) but I I gave you online seven pages of notes. What is temptation? Where does it come from? First of all, it doesn't come from God. Can we be clear on that? All right. Uh, Let me just read you just a a quick scripture on that one just so we can uh, be clear about that. Um, I'm reading now from uh, the uh, uh, well, first of all, what is temptation? Well, temptation is the work of the devil to drag you to hell. That's, that's what temptation is, all right? That's the unacademic version. Temptation is the work of the devil to drag you to hell. More academically, temptation is an attraction either from the outside or the outside, of, uh, inside of oneself or from within to act contrary to right reason and the commandments of God. Okay, So we have this either thoughts or movements of the passions which want to move us away from doing what is right. Okay, That's a temptation. Now, but listen, from this is from the book of James. When tempted, no one should say, "God is tempting me," for God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone. But each person is tempted when they are dragged away by their own evil desire and enticed. And then, after desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin, and, and sin, when it is full, gro- full grown, gives birth to death. Look at James. James never minces minces words. One John chapter two. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life is not from the Father. It is not from the Father. It is not from the Father. It is from the world. Okay. And who is the prince of this world? See? Satan. All right. Now, we see, therefore, even though the text says, lead us not into temptation, what it simply means is that, God, don't let me... Get carried away or led off into temptation. I know my own weak nature, my own wiliness, my own tendency to sin. I also know that I'm living in a fallen world governed by a fallen angel and I have a fallen nature. Help me, Father. Don't let me be led away into sin. Okay? And that's, don't let me be led away into temptation. All right? So, or carried off, you see. All right, and so that's what it's getting at. Now, um, I, you can look at the different Greek terms and all that, but I've got, again, seven pages of notes for you, all right? I, the only reason I have to demur, I just don't have time. Temptation is its own topic. Where does it come from? All the different sources of temptation. And then the whole second half of my notes are, okay, given the fact that there is temptation, we all know that, right? <laughs> How, what do I do about it? How do I get re- free of it? What, what are some of the things I can do to get better, see? And in effect, I give all those, all that stuff in the notes. So it's in the notes, and I'd be happy to come back in Lent or some other time and just demand from the ICC that I be called for uh, a course on temptation. <laughs> all right. <laughs> I also was on Catholic Answers Live with Patrick uh, Coffin, and I did a whole radio show. You can go on Catholic Answers Live, you know, their podcast, or however you go on their website and just look up my name. and. I've been on about a dozen times, but one of them is on temptation, the whole, a whole hour that we spent on temptation on the radio. So those are some sources for you, okay? But I've got to move on. Okay, now, the final area then that the, our Father talks about, we are being, what are we being delivered from? Sin, temptation, and now the evil one, the evil one. So, with that in mind, let's move on to... The three incursions of the evil one. We all we speak in the church's tradition of three levels of demonic or diabolical incursions. All right, we speak first of all of temptation, and we all got that till five five minutes after you're dead. (laughs) And then there's oppression, and then there's possession. All right, let's then uh, take a quick look here at. each of them, but we've already talked, as I said, about temptation. So, let's move on, though, to this question of um, oppression. Okay, oppression. Now, the, the actual technical word in the, in the uh, um, exorcism manuals of the church is obsession. Obsession. This is the one when one is obsessed by a devil. Not possessed, but obsessed. Now, the problem, the reason I'm using oppression, because I think in modern English it more captures what the word obsession really means. You know, usually when we think of a person being obsessed, they can't stop thinking about something and, you know, they're you know, obsessed, that's what we, whereas what, what we're really talking about in, in oppression is that one is again, well, I'll just read you what I've written here. This term describes an elevated level of influence of evil spirits upon the soul or the body of a person. Now, this um, influence, this oppression, may take different forms. Sometimes it's physical. More often, it's emotional, psychological, or spiritual. So, but first of all, if one is being oppressed, they have elevated. Notice that not, we all have some fears and anxieties, but they have elevated fears and anxieties. Severe and tormenting dreams or thoughts, bouts of extreme and, and negative feelings, such as guilt, anger, depression, grief, or discouragement, with no obvious... Notice this now, with no obvious corresponding reason or cause, okay? Other than I'm being attacked. It doesn't make sense that I'm going through this, you see. All right. So there's no natural, simply natural explanation. Number four, strange, fearful, troubling thoughts and experiences when trying to pray or engage in holy activity, okay? Now, again, we all have distraction in prayer. That's not what this is talking about, but I mean real serious incursions and attacks. Diabolical, sometimes a dark presence, or things start to fall, or there's there's just really severe oppression or severe anxieties that beset a person. Okay, um, sometimes there are. Um, uh, physical attacks such as scratches, bruises, bite marks that appear sometimes in the morning or after sleep. Okay? Uh, so again, a person wakes up and they've been scratched or bitten and, and they, they, they see bruising and so on. Okay? So sometimes there are physical attacks. Sometimes they happen in the night and the person remembers them. Sometimes they don't. Uh, it is said that Catherine of Siena would wake up and the demons would be tormenting and uh, she would start to say, oh, it's just you. And she'd go back to sleep. Um, Likewise, psychosomatic experiences. Now, we use the word psychosomatic. I'm using it here technically, right? So something that involves both the psych and the body, okay? So psychosomatic experiences, such as being the experience of, being raped now, demons don't have bodies. They can't literally rape, but the the person experiences uh, a rape-like experience. So it feels very real to them. See, so psychosomatic experiences as being raped or physically attacked by demons, or of seeing black and shadowy figures. Such attacks may not leave physical evidence, but to the afflicted person, they are very real experiences. Okay, so. Sometimes there are sounds or physical manifestations of, of the presence of demons in a certain place, and this is usually called an infestation. All right. So sometimes, again, someone will call me and say, "Father, come over here and bless this house right away." You know, it's crazy stuff happening over here, and um, and so on. So, um, by the way, tell your priest if you're going to have a house blessing that you also want the Leonine prayers. You know, yeah. Don't just throw a little holy water and say, "Well, it's all blessed." <laughs> Leonine prayers, Leonine, L-E-O-N-I-N-E, yeah, Leonine, I can't spell out loud, but anyway. Um, basically, it is a, it's a minor exorcism for a place where well, you say to the devil and all demons here, out. Time to go. And it's a lengthy prayer, so the priest might balk and say, it looks like three pages here. <laughs> Father, there'll be a little extra donation for it. <laughs> Now, why do I say this? Well, you know, in the old church, in the old days, in the old ritual, when it came to what we call solemn blessings, there was an instinct that you always exorcise before you bless. Now, in the Eastern Rite, do you still do some of those, are there exorcisms before blessings? Unfortunately, in 1970, just about all of our exorcisms were thrown out. Okay, there are still some minor exorcisms um, that are done. But for example, when you would bless holy water, the solemn blessing of holy water, you would first go, and you would say to the salt, Exorcizote creatura salis, you know, and there's a long prayer, but I, I cast you out, all demons from you, O oh creature, salt. And you, you, say, you say the prayer, and then you, you bless the salt. And then you come over to the water. Exorciso creatura acque, you know, I cast you, I cast out from you, all demons uh, from you, O oh creature, water. And, and there's a long, you know, a fairly lengthy prayer. And then you bless the water, and then you put the salt and the water together, and you say another prayer and then you're blessed. That's a solemn blessing of holy water. Don't settle for anything less. <laughs> <laughs> Father, I want the solemnly blessed water. Now, St. Thomas in the Summa, and by the way, there would be other solemn blessings like that. Um, and certainly, in, and in the baptismal rite, even of infants, there were very powerful exorcisms set over the infant, you know. Exorci, see, ea immundissime spiritus <laughs> nomini dominie Jesu Christi reconios sententiam tuam diabole. You know, I cast you out, all evil spirits from this child of God, this creature of God. Get out now and recognize your sentence, oh diabolical one. And it goes on and on. There's, that's just one of them, but there's four of them in the old rite of baptism. I always recommend, again, if, you have a, if you're able to make the request, <laughs> the old rite is available. So now Thomas in the Summa says, why do we exercise? He's asking the question in a baptism, why would you bother exercising? Because the kid's going to be baptized at the end anyway, right? And he says, he quotes Jeremiah. He says, Jeremiah says, never sow seed on thorny ground. First clear the thorns and then sow the seed. And so he says, Thomas concludes, therefore, he says, therefore, it is not that the baptism is any less valid if there's no exorcism, but rather it's more fruitful because the ground has been cleared. The seed is then sown and the thorns can not immediately choke it off. So you send the devil packing. Get out in the name of Jesus Christ. And then you go to work (laughs) and you baptize, you see. So in the ancient rites of the church, there was always this sense that we have to clear away the presence of evil and then bring the blessing. Okay. So all this comes back to the fact that sometimes in house blessings, too, the same would hold true, that before you do the blessing, it's good to read the Leonine prayers, which were meant to be used uh, as a minor exorcism to exercise a place, not a person, but a place, telling the devils, anyone that's hanging out, out with you. Because we're bringing God's blessings here, see? And so I just encourage you. So there are infestations and and so on, all right? Now, there's also a major rite of exorcism that's very similar. The difference there is that the, the, the exorcist has the faculty from the bishop to exercise the place, and that gives it extra power, you see? But it's a minor exorcism. It's just done by an ordinary priest, all right? Now, there's a little book that priests can get, and so on. It's called Minor Exorcisms That Priests Can Say. It's a little brown book, and most of them know about it. Okay. now, let's continue on, though. Oppression, most people who enter into oppression start to think, maybe I'm possessed. Or someone who sees a person going through this wonders, are they possessed? Almost never. Very holy men and women have encouraged these things. I went through a period where I was getting a lot of this stuff, too, in my middle 30s, you know? I needed some deliverance ministry, some praying. I needed psychotherapy. <laughs> I needed uh, lots of blessings and prayers and, um, and and people praying over me. And, and, and within, you know, within an um, amount of time, it was gone, all right? But it was severe anxiety, dark presences in my room, and just feeling overwhelmed with you know, darkness and so on, and and, and so again, it was, it was it was I was not possessed, but I was definitely seriously oppressed. And I meet people a lot who come to me. Uh, we I, we do deliverance ministry in our diocese, as I'm sure you, and I, I know you do here in Arlington. Uh, there's a an unbound process, and there is an assigned exorcist in, in in this diocese. I'm sure. I don't know exactly who, but I just say you know. And it's same with Washington and so on. So. But people are reported often to be possessed when really they're really oppressed. And um, sometimes it doesn't really, I don't care what it is, Father, just get rid of it. (laughs) And so what happens here is there's different ways to go about dealing with people who are oppressed. All right, there are two different ways. Now, in your notes, if you're following, there's the confrontational approach, which is basically in the form of a minor exorcism, you know, and where you confront the demons and tell them to leave. And don't let the door hit them on the butt when they're going out, you know? And you, you know, you, you, you're very bold and you tell them to go out and get out. There's, the, well, there's also though the non-confrontational way which is particularly, somebody, have any of you heard of the unbound process? Okay, Neil Lozano's work, all right? This is a very gentle way where you don't address the demons at all. You speak to the person with love and you minister to the person. You ignore the demons. And the demons manifest or snarl or there's some shenanigans going on while you pray, you ignore it, you stay with the person, and you say, what's happening right now? What feelings are you having? And you, you, you work with them. Do these feel like something old? Maybe there's some forgiveness they need to give, or there's some lies that they need to renounce. I renounce the lie that, um, that, Jesus, that, that, that the curses of evil ones are stronger than the blessings of Jesus. I renounce that lie. You, know, you take them through renunciations. You take them through, um, if you will, They they, they renounce any sins, but they also renounce any lies that they bought into. They they fear, are are there people in their life they need to forgive? You begin to uncover what we call the footholds or the strongholds of the evil one. The devil gets footholds in people's lives through areas where there's unforgiveness, where there's hurt or trauma from the past, or where uh, there are, if you will, uh, situations where they bought into lies, lies about themselves, see? And... And, and so all of these are ways of saying you try to find what's the source, what's the stronghold, what's the foothold, and you work to heal the person, to get rid of that stronghold so the devil has nowhere to hold on to and just slides off. And that's the non-confrontational method. The confrontational method is I command you in the name of Jesus Christ, all you evil ones to be gone, get thee gone. In the name of Jesus Christ, get thee gone. Go to the foot of, cr- of the cross of Christ and he will deal with you accordingly. You know? Now this is what we call the confrontational approach. I do not recommend it for lay people at all. There are times where a priest or a deacon might be OK with doing that. And there, there, is, there is some history to, you know, when, when a person is struggling with oppression, that there can be what we call minor exorcisms, exorcism-like formulas like that. Okay. Um, I would recommend with lay people that they work with a non-confrontational approach where they spend time praying with the person, they help to uncover the strongholds, and there's a way and there are people, has anyone here in this, diocese, in this room today been trained in the unbound process, okay? See? We actually have good lay teams both here in Arlington and in um, uh, Washington and also in Baltimore. All three of our dioceses prefer this method because it's the safest method for lay people. Lay people really ought not be directly confronting demons. Not a, not a good idea. Now, it can be done, and I don't deny that there could be a charism that a lay person could have to do minor exorcisms, to command demons to depart, and they can obey, because all of us have authority in Christ Jesus to tell demons to take a hike. And sometimes in your own situation, if you're really feeling down and depressed, you say, Satan, I command you to leave, and leave now in the name of Jesus. Just get out. And that's okay. You can... But generally speaking, I would recommend a non-confrontational approach when a person is oppressed. And ideally, on any unbound team, there should be a, a priest or a deacon who's in consultation and is part of that process. And people will pray with them, and the priest can do a little bit of that confrontational exorcism prayer, and then the unbound process, and it's a good combination. And Generally, when people are oppressed, this is what we do. All right, now in the rare cases where people are possessed, How do we determine this and so on? Well, fundamentally, a person who is is suspected of being possessed is brought to the church. There's usually an assigned exorcist or two in most dioceses, and it is the job of the exorcist or his delegate. By the way, I'm talking about now the official exorcist of a diocese, all right? he must be appointed by the bishop. This is not ever, any, something any priest can ever do unless he's directly appointed by the bishop to be in this ministry. The person is brought to the priest who then performs a background check, interviews with them, tries to find some areas where they might have gotten involved in occult practices. Uh, perhaps they were playing with Ouija boards or tarot cards or had gotten involved with some kind of d- demonic gaming and different things. There's a lot of unfortunate things in our culture today where people are dabbling in the diabolical. Don't ever dabble and don't ever make light of it because the devil will op- walk through any even slight crack in the door. But again, if there's any background, so the exorcist, the, the first of all, does a background check. He must rule out natural causes like mental illness, or lesser degrees like oppression. And then he performs something called diagnostic prayers. He takes some of the prayers of the rite, not the entire rite, and reads those prayers and looks for certain signs. I'm, I'm hesitant to say what those signs are because I just don't want to sow lots of seeds. <laughs> but but <clears throat> I want to say that there are four very particular signs that are looked for by the church, and you can look it up on the internet yourself, but I just would rather not get into that tonight. And, if any of those, if, if at least two of those signs are observed, then he would apply to the bishop and say, all right, I think we do have a case of possession here. And um, the, um, um, we, need to, we need to ask for the permission to go through the rite of major exorcism. All right. I don't know most dioceses in this country that have more than four or five ca- cases of major exorcism a year. They're just, it's, it's pretty rare. It's pretty rare to be outright possessed. What does it mean to say that a person is possessed? In possession, a door has opened to a fallen angel, a demon in other words, to possess a person. that, That is to say, they have been submerged to such an extent that they are no longer able to resist the devil's lies and tortures, even with the prayers and support of others. The demons gain access not only to the person's thinking, but also to significant parts of their will, but also to their body, and they can speak. They can speak and move through it, with the person being able to not, not not being able to resist this. Now, um, we talk about partial and complete possession. We'll get to that in a moment. But so, in the diagnostic prayers, one of the things that the exorcist would look for as he reads, and and by the way, these prayers are usually read in a language that the person cannot understand. The the, the person themselves, you know, usually in Latin. All right, and um, uh, just to make sure that the the human being isn't interacting, and if you start getting replies and responses, and the demon starts to manifest, um, then you're you're starting to get evidence that there's real possession, and that's so. There's there's aspects doing these diagnostic prayers that the exorcist looks for actual evidence. Okay, once the background checks and other things have been ruled out, the actual evidence is looked for, and if there is evidence, then permission for a major exorcism is supplied. Surveying the country, as I say, most dioceses have no more than four or five of these types of exorcisms per year, okay? So it's fairly rare. Most people who are troubled are not possessed but oppressed and uh, can therefore benefit from things. Now, I want to just say this. It is very, very dangerous to perform a major exorcism on someone who is not possessed, all right? It, a Possession is rare. It can't be acquired simply like a disease or a mosquito bite. Right? Somehow a door has been opened, there's a history to it, and so on. So you don't just sit there minding your own business at, at adoration and get possessed. Okay? It's just not the way it works. Those possessed have somehow opened a door and in some manner permit the demons a foothold. Other explanations have to be ruled out. Performing major exorcism on a person who is not possessed can cause great harm psychologically, spiritually, emotionally, and even physically to the person. It would be given its rarity in the intensity of exorcism that sometimes goes on for months a very intensive work. Um, it should be like surgery, something you do as a last recourse. Everything else has been ruled. You don't rush to knee surgery, right? You don't rush to back surgery. Let's try everything else first, and then only then, only then. So again, this is something to be very, the church has always been very, very cautious about rushing to do an exorcism. The rite of exorcism says that the exorcist must have moral certitude. He must not too easily believe that a person is possessed, and he must have a moral, not an absolute, we can't have absolute, but a moral, that is to say, a very strong degree of certitude that this person actually is possessed and needs exorcism. Okay, Because it's a, it's a very, very wrenching, wrenching thing for both the possessed and for the priest and other lay people involved on the team when there's an exorcism. It's extremely wrenching and draining. It is never to be something to be rushed into. Okay, And it doesn't work like magic. One and you're done. It just doesn't work that way. It often takes months of long sessions, sometimes several times a week, you know, to get through a, and to finally reach deliverance, okay? And, you you know, there's some wild things that can happen in an exorcism too. And so all of these are just ways of saying the church is extremely cautious in rushing to presume possession. All right. Delivering us then from evil. I've got to wrap it up. We're, we're done here tonight. Uh, I've got to open it up for questions. But I want to say that we've looked tonight at uh, the... Uh, uh, w- well, first of all, what deliverance is, and I'll sum that up in a minute, but... We're delivered from sin, from temptation, and from the evil one. And regarding the evil one, we're all struggling with temptation. We need deliverance. Help us, Lord. Deliver us from that. Make us stronger against it. Lead us out of that, Lord. See, some of us go through periods of oppression. I would say most people in their Christian walk have some periods in their life where there may be oppression. Okay, It may not be everyone, literally everyone, but most people who are making significant progress in the spiritual life will often be attacked by the evil one in a particular way at some point. Don't be afraid. Just get people praying. All right? You get through it, it's fine. Rarely there is possession. And in that case, we do have the right of major exorcism. But it is a gruesome thing. And it is to be not something that anybody would ever want. <laughs> All right? And it's, uh, it's tough. All right. Now, with that in mind, let me just sum up by saying... Um, The um, recapitulation, deliverance, what is it? It is what happened to you when you were baptized and you received the gift of faith when you were delivered from one kingdom to another kingdom. Deliverance and subsequent to baptism is when the church through her ministers or members helps a person take fuller possession of the freedom that they have already been given in Christ. And deliverance is moving then from a place of darkness and lies to a place of light and truth, seeing ourselves As God sees, and this is the fundamental work of Jesus Christ in his church, to deliver us from the power of sin and evil and darkness and bring us into grace and the kingdom of light and the kingdom of love. And that's the work. Now, the thing I'm concerned about is because we did end up talking about these oppression and possession, you go, ooh, and there's all this exotic stuff and 10,000 questions come to your mind. Don't lose the big picture. All right. Deliverance is the ordinary daily work of God that you should be rejoicing in and experiencing in your life as you come out of the kingdom of darkness and into the kingdom of light by experience. It's already happened for you in baptism, but you begin to grow into the graces that have already been given. So don't get too stuck on the exotic stuff. Remember the daily stuff where you begin to have incredible gratitude that your sins have been forgiven you and that God is delivering you and changing your life and deepening your love and deepening your faith and your rejoicing in this truth. That is the real work of deliverance that you should take from this room tonight. Don't get too stuck on the last two things. I know, oh, I want... And I'll probably get questioned. I get that. But don't forget big one, the big picture, which is that daily deliverance that the Lord wants to give you. And how? Through a relationship with Him. A life-changing, transformative relationship with the living God who loves you, who made you, and is preparing a place in heaven for you. That is how deliverance works through that relationship that you have with Him. Amen.
0: Thank you, Monsignor Pope. Where The poem prayer that you prayed during this part, where is that from? Poem or prayer? Yes, the poem prayer as you were um, oh, referring.
1: The poem or prayer? Yes, the poem prayer as you were- um, Oh, Years I Spent in Vanity and Pride. It's an old Protestant hymn. <laughs> years I spent in vanity and pride, Caring not my Lord was crucified. Knowing that it was for me, he died at Calvary. Sorry. Yeah. Anyway, but yeah, it's an old hymn. Uh, It's called At Calvary. At Calvary. Yeah. One of those old Calvary and blood songs they're called in that category. Yes.
0: We have a question coming in online from Ruth. And she asks, how does one sort out what may be psychological difficulties versus oppression?
1: Yeah. Well, you don't do it alone. (laughs) <laughs> you, you sort it out with somebody. Ideally, if, if someone starts to think they're moving into oppression, they should talk to a good friend and so on. But generally, we often will find that, you know, talking to your priest or deacon is going to be a, you know, an important thing uh, you know, for the priest uh, to, to work with. And then also, um, you know, there are some good, very skilled lay people. As I said, in this diocese, we, if a person wants to get a, an assessment, they can, uh, can call the diocese here in Arlington or in Washington and... Um, There are there are unbound teams and and also in Baltimore an unbound team and then clergy and others that can assist with that. So I would say if they're they're thinking they may be moving from just mental struggles to real oppression, ask. Monsignor, it seems like um, the incursion of the evil one can be more than just for the individual as far as oppression and and possession, does it go beyond that? And can it be more than one person, but the whole culture or, or a community? Yeah, you might have heard recently in Mexico they did an exorcism of the whole country. And, and one of the things that bishops used to do on the Feast of the Epiphany with the blessing of the chalk and all that in Epiphany water, it was an exorcism on the whole community and they would go around sprinkling water on the Feast of the Epiphany. It's all been dropped now, but you know, I can almost imagine Donald World standing before the, ca- the Capitol. Yes, I mean, certainly cultures, we, we, we go through these periods where darkness and the incursions of the evil one are deeply affected by culture because obviously culture affects us. and if. They can affect the culture they can get to us and people start opening doors and things multiply quickly yes
0: we actually have another question coming in online from michael in wellington new zealand who asks what are binding prayers do lay people have authority to say them
1: i uh as far as binding prayers you know i where you basically say to a demon i bind you or uh, i i command you to be quiet in the name of jesus christ um not recommendable but uh there, there would certainly be though some who would disagree with that I just think, be careful with this, is my advice. Um, Neil Lozano goes through in his book, uh, Resisting the Devil, that he wants to reclaim, I think among the good, among lay people, the charisms that we do have. You know, some lay people have the charism to bring physical healings. You know, they just got a beautiful charism that just because you're a priest doesn't mean you do, but some people can just do that. Other people have these charisms. So in the rarer occasions where a person seems to have a charism that's identifiable, Um, Certainly uh, one can, but as far as actual binding uh, and loosing uh, in the more juridical sense, no, that would that would involve the clergy uh, who receive that power from Christ.
0: Um, Father, you said that Monsignor, I'm sorry. You said that sometimes it takes weeks or months for the devil to listen. Does he in fact actually listen? Does he get a little bit less persuasive as the time goes on? I mean, is he going to bother? What's going to make him listen?
1: Well, okay, how does an exorcism work? We're talking about a person who's possessed. The reason an exorcism works is that the devil is narcissistic and prideful, and he cannot stand it that a little mud doll of a human being is telling him to get out. And I, I mean, there are all kinds of epitaphs that are said to the devil to the devil. I mean, I mean, just listen to some of these titles. I'll say some of them in Latin, but, you know, as, as the devil listens to these things, he just can't stand it anymore. And he, pre- he presents and he manifests. But, you know, fide, ostis generis humani, mortis adductor, vitae raptor, declinator, you know, enemy of the faith, foe of the human race, carrier of death, robber of life, shirker of justice, root of evil. All these are biblical expressions that are related to the devil. And after a while, he just can't stand it anymore that a, a mud doll of a priest or whoever is saying this to him, who do you think you are? Do you know? And he presents. And then one begins in the name of Jesus Christ, and there are very lengthy you know, exorcism prayers that are done um, that basically just command him over and over again in the name of Jesus Christ. And little by little, the power of the evil one weakens. But, and this is why sometimes they take a long time, it has to interact with the faith of the person who's being delivered. Because without faith, there's still that doorway, that foothold that, that they have the demons claim to have some legal right to be there. And until the person has enough faith to say, I am absolutely done with this, I renounce every lie, I accept Jesus Christ, I I, I, I renounce everything and I claim my freedom in Jesus Christ, until they're really so it has to interact with their faith to say those renunciations. Um, otherwise, you know, uh, it's, it's going to take a lot longer. So it's a, it's a combination of growing the person's faith and weakening the devil's footholds by commanding. And we never in, there's never an insult that's given to a devil. Don't ever insult a demon. That is not the purpose of these things. That's why any exorcist will always stick very closely to the text. He won't improvise. <laughs> because if you get into an insulting thing where the devil starts to draw you into his world and you start to duke it out, you're going to lose. So that's why every exorcist is always trained, never, never depart and start to get into long conversations with demons. You're going to lose every time. So, so these may sound insulting, but they're all biblical. They're all in the Bible. We never would never say any of these phrases at the devil um, simply to insult.
0: Yes, Monsignor, do you ask for the intercession of any saints?
1: In fact, the rite of exorcism begins with the litany of the saints. By the way, there's a new rite of exorcism and the old rite of exorcism, and both of them begin though with a litany of the saints. And the the new rite is a good rite, but most exorcists would agree that it's been defanged, and they they prefer to go back to they they, they do the new rite and say, well, that's nice, and then you pick up the old rite and. <laughs> um,
0: at Medjugorje, I visited Medjugorje, and I, they taught us there to every Saturday uh, say um, an. A, the Nicene Creed or whatever, and then seven Our Fathers, and then to go into every room and say, in the name of Jesus, Satan, be gone. And are you saying not to do that?
1: No, I'm not saying that. Um, um, Again, the fact that you say, in the name of Jesus, Satan, be gone, that's not, that's not. I just would not, uh, yeah, I would not get into a situation where you're working with a person who is troubled. By a demon, whether probably oppressed, but where you start to get into lots of duking it out with the demon directly. I just, but simple, simple expression like that isn't. There's no harm in that.
0: We hope you enjoyed this presentation from the Institute of Catholic Culture. If you'd like to learn more about the mission of the Institute and how you may become a part of this important work, please visit our website at www.instituteofcatholicculture.org. Or call us at 540-635-7155. And may the glory of Christ church be ever more manifest upon the earth. St. John the Evangelist, pray for us.